Good. Glad to hear it. Uh, so we're winding down our study through the book of Colossians. Uh, we got this week, and then one more next week. And then I go on vacation. Yes. On the road again, driving to St. Louis, Missouri. That sounds crazy. Why would you do that? Two granddaughters. That's why you would do it. It's the only reason. So uh, we've completed the two main sections of Paul's letter to the church. Sort of wound that up last week. In the first section, the first two chapters, I'm going to do a little review. The apostle seeks to combat the false teachings that were infiltrating the church by declaring several great theological truths. These truths included the supremacy of Christ over all things. Christ is better than what they're offering you. And the believer's identity in Christ, who you are in Christ. Paul makes it clear, in contrast to what these false teachers were promoting, those who trust in the supreme Christ are new creatures in Him. They've died to their old sinful selves and have been raised to new life in Christ. And it's the experience of this new life that Paul focuses on in the second section of the letter. From chapter 3 to the, uh, to the beginning of chapter 4, again finished up last week, he lays out a series of instructions for living our new life in Christ. These instructions cover our personal life, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another in the body of Christ, our family relationships, and our, 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 even our working relationships. Then last week, verses 2 through 6 of Colossians 4, we looked at Paul's final instructions. He declares the need to pray uh, steadfastly, watchfully, alertfully, and thankfully. And he calls the Colossians and us to pray that the gospel be preached clearly. And finally, he gives instructions for walking or, or living in such a way that the gospel goes forth to outsiders, those who are outside the church, to non-Christians. It's, pretty, it's a pretty comprehensive little book, right, in, in those chapters, covering some pretty deep theology and then throwing some uh, important instructions for us. I think if you had Colossians and you lived by Colossians and that's all you had, well, God gave us much more, thank God. But Colossians would be sufficient in so many ways for living the Christian life. So we've seen the, both the theology behind our new life in Christ, and we've been given instructions for living that new life. I think if I was going to start Colossians over again, instead of just, I mean, the supremacy of Christ is certainly the focus, but I would, I would maybe title it New Life Because Of or In the Supremacy of Christ. I think that just... Uh, brings home everything that this book is about. Now, as we come to chapter 4, verses 7 to 14, we're given really one final ingredient to help us live this new life in Christ. As Paul concludes the letter, he focuses on uh, several people, two of which will be uh, sent out, will be coming to Colossae. He's going to send them out. And then others who desire to send their greetings to the church. Well, Actually, uh, six others that desire to send their greetings to the church. And by, by examining both what Paul says about these men here in Colossians and what we know from them from other places in Scripture, we see examples of new life in Christ that we can learn from, that we can follow. 
And our first example shows us a new life of service. A new life of service. That's our first point. In verses 7 and 8, we read about a guy named Tychicus. Tychicus will tell you, Paul says, all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may, he may encourage your hearts. Now, before we look at what Paul says here about Tychicus in Colossians, let's first see what we learn about him from other New Testament scriptures. Most scholars believe Tychicus was converted during Paul's two-plus-year ministry in the city of Ephesus. So Ephesus, we're talking about, uh, we're going to mention this, Asia, we're going to say Asia, I'm going to say Asia, you're not going to say it. Well, some of you may say it, but Asia is a province, modern-day Turkey, that area, but it included Colossae, it included Ephesus, it included Laodicea, other, other cities that we're familiar with. So Paul's in Ephesus, and through his ministry in Ephesus, he's ministering to people, and then people are going out to different cities in the province of Asia. And so it's believed that Tychicus was converted in Asia, in Ephesus, by, through Paul's ministry. Because in Acts chapter 20, if you want to look that up, not now, but later, we learn that he, Tychicus, was in Ephesus at the end of Paul's missionary work. So he probably witnessed, if you're familiar with what happened in Ephesus, uh, the great Ephesian silversmith riot against Paul. He had, uh, he had sort of said, these little idols you're making, you silversmith guys, are nothing, and that got him irritated. We won't go into that. Acts 19, you can look at that. But Tychicus was there. This riot caused Paul to leave Ephesus and head for Macedonia and then to Greece. And Acts 20 also tells us that Tychicus went with him. Paul didn't stay in Greece long uh, before he decided to return to Jerusalem where he would ultimately be arrested. And again, Tychicus was one of his traveling companions. So, so we can surmise that Tychicus experienced much of the same things, the same danger, the same persecutions that Paul did on his journeys. Of himself, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, <gasps> danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he goes on. So as a traveling companion, Paul might not have been the greatest guy to hook your wagon to if you were looking for some comfort, you know. As a traveling companion of Paul, Tychicus could have probably wrote these things about himself. Clearly he was a remarkably, anybody that hung with Paul was remarkably loyal to the apostle. And that takes us to Colossians 4, 7 and 8, our passage, where we read that Paul chose Tychicus to travel as his messenger back to the churches of Asia. He was charged with two duties. First, he was to encourage the hearts of the believers by telling them of Paul's activities. So he was representing Paul. We see this also in the parallel passage in Ephesians. So, uh, We'll see this, but Tychicus is going to carry the letter to the Colossians and the Ephesians. So we have both of those letters. And in Ephesians, Paul writes, So that you may 
know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So first, Tychicus was charged with encouraging the hearts of the believers in Colossae telling them what's happening with Paul's ministry. He's imprisoned in Rome. He wants them to know how it's going. Uh, Probably in Colossae, in Ephesus, and other churches in the province of Asia. And the second purpose, we can surmise, it doesn't actually state it here. I mentioned it. Tychicus was probably the one who delivered Paul's letters. There was a letter to the Colossians, uh, another to a slave owner, in Colossae, named Philemon, more on him shortly, another to the Ephesians, and probably a a last letter to the Laodiceans, which uh, we don't have, but is mentioned in verse 16 of Colossians 4. So from all this, it seems clear that Tychicus was basically Paul's errand boy. He did what Paul asked him to do. If you look at later references in Titus 3 and 2 Timothy 4, which we won't do today, uh, but there we find the confirmation that Tychicus performed these humble functions throughout Paul's life and ministry. Tychicus left no writings that we're aware of. He did nothing extraordinary, which were thought worthy of preserving by Luke, another traveling companion of Paul, author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Apparently, Tychicus was an ordinary guy. However, God used him as part of his extraordinary plans and purposes for his church. Notice that Colossians, what Colossians reveals about his character. In verse 7, Paul called him a beloved brother. He was greatly loved by Paul, probably by the church in Rome, where Paul is writing this from. This speaks to his loyalty, his compassion, his care for others. Tychicus was also one of those people you you knew you could count on, for he was also called a faithful minister. That word minister in the Greek is diakonos, which is where we get our English word, transliteration really, deacon, which not only means minister, but servant. Tychicus was a faithful servant to to Paul and to the early church. There's no hint of him being a, a great thinker, a a great speaker, just a servant. Which in the kingdom of God is something we must all strive for. Of himself, Jesus said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. To follow our Lord's example of service is the greatest aspiration of any believer, and Tychicus certainly did that. Paul rounds off his description uh, with, of Tychicus with fellow servant in the Lord. That phrase fellow servant is one word in the Greek and it means co-slave. Paul makes it clear that both he, the apostle, and Tychicus, his faithful servant, his, this minister, are both slaves to God. They are both under the authority of the same master. And by saying this, I think Paul expressed equality between himself and Tychicus. It's almost as as if Paul is saying, don't think because I wrote the letter and Tychicus is delivering it that I'm better than him. We're both servants of the same Lord who is sovereign, who's given us different tasks. From the beautiful teamwork of Paul and Tychicus, we learn some great truths about service. There is greatness 
in the smallest thing done for Christ? What would be the use of Paul writing the letter if it never got delivered? What would be the use of the deep theological truths of Christ's supremacy over all things and the believer's new life in Christ if no one ever read them? And how would the church in Colossae and the church in Riverside experience that new life if the congregations never received the instructions that Paul laid out for them? As the 14th century proverb, which became a nursery rhyme, teaches us, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. Can you guys read that? Okay. For one of the shoe, the horse was lost. For one of the horse, the rider was lost. For one of the rider, the battle was lost. For one of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And all from the want of a horseshoe nail. The smallest thing can make the biggest difference. So it is with the seemingly small, behind-the-scenes things we do for Christ. Some of them are absolutely indispensable to the kingdom of God. And we'll never know how much so until we get to heaven. It's clear that when Tychicus, the beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord, was doing the smallest thing, he was serving Christ. He was doing, as we talked about a number of weeks, all things in the name of Christ. But we can run the risk, I think we do run the risk, I don't know if it's our culture or just a human thing, of thinking that the upfront things... The leader things, the things the pastors, the worship leaders, the missionaries do is really what truly matters. But that is not the case. We need to realize that as we seek to serve Christ in many different ways, you know, I think of these guys up here every week, the tech team, the, the ladies that serve the, in the women's ministry, our ushers, our greeters, our, you know, where would we be without donut providers? I mean, we would not have donuts. That's crazy. Donuts, coffee, things that keep us going. Teaching our people, teaching our kids, ministering. And then, and then that's just some things we do here. And then there's the things you do in your normal life, ministering to your neighbors, sharing the gospel with your family and friends, and so much more. As we do these things for Christ, they're just as important, just as eternal is what happens when I stand up here, when Liam leads us in singing on a Sunday morning. We are fellow servants, co-slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And together, we form His body, the church of God, where each member is crucial. You need to think about that. Uh, you're a member of the body of Christ, and what you do is crucial. So be encouraged. Even though others uh, may not see what you're doing for Christ, never forget God does. He sees and says to Tychicus and servants like him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So in Tychicus, we have one who was dedicated to faithful service to Paul, to the church, to the Lord. And I pray that we're inspired by what we've, what we've seen. That we will seek to serve the Lord faithfully in whatever capacity He calls us to, you to. That we will follow Tychicus' example of new life in Christ. And then second, we're given an example of a new life of transformation. And with him, Tychicus. Onesimus, and with him, 
Tychicus is, so he's talked about Tychicus, now he's going to move on. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Onesimus was also a faithful, beloved brother. And as such, he would accompany Tychicus to Colossae. He would share the duty of encouraging the hearts of the believers in Asia. Now, what do we know about Onesimus? Well, from Paul's letter to Philemon, a Christian leader in the church in Colossae, we know that before Onesimus was a believer, he was a not-so-good doulos, probably not a slave. You know, we talked about the different slave, servant, bond servant a couple weeks ago, but a bond servant. He, seemed, he, he seems to, be, to have owed a debt to Philemon and was supposed to work it off. However, he ran away instead. He ran from Colossae to Ephesus and then on to Rome. But in Rome, he stopped running because there he was found by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Paul's letter to Philemon, he writes on behalf of a transformed Onesimus. Beginning in verse 10, we read, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Onesimus, while in Rome, he'd run away to Rome. Somehow, not sure how, he comes in contact with Paul. Paul preaches the gospel, or he hears of the gospel, and he comes to Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And he was forever changed. Formerly, he's, Paul goes on in verse 11. This is, he's writing to Philemon, his former master, or his master of this runaway bondservant. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. An amazing transformation had taken place in Onesimus. He went from being an untrustworthy, useless bondservant, running away to avoid paying his debt, to being a useful, faithful, beloved servant and brother in Christ. One who Paul trusted and would have been glad to serve with him. He wanted him Paul wanted him on his team. You remember back in the day when you'd be picking teams and, and there was the, the, last, the last guy picked. Onesimus was not that guy. Paul wanted him on his team. Onesimus' heart and life had been transformed by Jesus Christ. He had been revolutionized by God's grace. And so I ask, have you experienced this kind of transformation in your life? Now for some, like Onesimus, the transformation is radical. Uh, it would have been clearly seen by those who knew him a B.C., before Christ. Apparently, he was not a very good worker. Maybe you could call him a lazy bum. And he ran away. He, he had responsibilities, and he ran away from them. But he's been radically changed. This was certainly the case for my, my parents, not that they were lazy bums, but without going into a lot of detail, which is not my prerogative, I do like to say before Christ... In their lives, our refrigerator was filled with beer, but after Christ, I could always find the milk. Not that it didn't have milk before, it was just hidden in the back behind the, the cases of something, you know, depending on where we lived at the time. So, 
And maybe you relate to this, to the dramatic changes Christ has made in your life. Or maybe you're more like me. I came to Christ at age 13 before my parents could let me get into many uh, deep external sins. Not that I didn't want to, they just stopped me. But regardless of how much external transformation takes place when one comes to Christ, a definite, radical, internal transformation takes place. Because even if the people around us don't see our wickedness, it's there in our hearts. As Paul wrote to the Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's everybody, B.C., before Christ. Regardless of our actions, prior to God's transforming work, our hearts are filled with selfishness. I mean, hang out with three, well, two. One of them, he's too little. Hang out with a couple uh, little kids. I just spent three days with my grandsons. Nobody has taught them to be selfish. It is, they're born that way. Pride, anger, you see a lot of anger, because they don't know they're supposed to control that stuff. We're not supposed to see that stuff. Lots of things internal to us. But Christ transforms our hearts, which results in Christ-like actions. Now, how does this happen? Well, to quote Colossians 2, 9 and 10, which we went over a number of weeks ago, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ is supreme. He's God. And you have, then check this out, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. When we come to Christ, our emptiness, even our sinfulness is replaced. We're filled with Him. We're filled in Him. We're filled with Him. We are now new creatures in Christ. And as such, we can, if we trust and obey Him, live lives filled with His purposes, His waves. His fruit, the fruit of His Spirit will grow in our lives. Ask yourself, am I being filled with the character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit? These fruit are listed in Galatians 5, 23 We're not going to go there, but, but I'll ask is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control growing in your life? If yes, then you've been, you're being transformed by the Spirit of God. And if not, you can today turn to Him. You can trust in Him to fill you, to transform you. He's there offering this transformation, offering this new heart, this radical change that we see in Onesipus and, and many others throughout history. Now, some may feel, uh, Pastor, you don't know me. It's too late for me. Maybe you're a Christian, but too often you've ran away from the, your master. You've ignored his instructions, and therefore... Uh, your life is a complete mess. Or maybe you've never trusted in Christ. You've never experienced being filled in Him, and your life too is a mess. Well, I would say this. Fixing messes is what God does. It's His specialty. But we must, like Onesimus, give ourselves to Him. We must allow Him to fix us. We must trust and obey Him. And if we do, he will transform our messes 
into something beautiful, into new lives in Christ. He'll make us different. The wife of uh, Francis Schaeffer, Edith Schaeffer, uh, tells the story of how the girl doing the cooking for their Christian community was supposed to make cake. But she made some errors and produced instead a mess of goo. That's a technical term for a blob of stuff. A mess of goo. Now, the logical thing to do when you have a mess of goo... <laughs> I sound like Dr. Seuss right there. That's pretty good. <laughs> Is to just throw it out. To so start anew with your mess of goo. Uh, but the Schaefers uh, didn't have a lot of money and had learned to be very economical in the kitchen. So Edith sat down with the girl, figured out what was in the gooey mess... And by adding an extra ingredient, was able to make what her husband described as the most marvelous noodles you've ever tasted in your life. <laughs> and it's the same way with our messy lives. If we place ourselves in the hands of the Lord, if we trust and obey Him, He can and will not only add a new ingredient or two or a lot, but he has the power to remove the bad ingredients, the bad stuff. He can shape us. He can transform us into something new and even unexpected. We may not get cake, but we will be noodles for the Lord. So, in Tychicus, we have an example of a new life of service. And in Onesimus, I practice these names a lot. Am I doing okay? Pretty good. There's three here. I'm, I'm yet to come to the last one. I didn't practice it as much, but we'll, we'll see how I do. Where am I at? Uh, we have example of a new life of transformation, Onesimus. Now, with the rest of those listed by Paul, I want us to see various aspects of a new life of fellowship. One of the things that takes place uh, when we come to Christ is an amazing connection with other believers. Sometimes we think fellowship is just eating together. It is eating together, amen, but it's more than that. We become part of, a, of the same family. We are uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes, often, even more brothers and sisters related than those who we're related to biologically. I've been privileged to experience this not only with fellow believers here in the U.S. and Texas, right? We have fellow believers visiting us from Texas, Dave in Atlanta, Coriel, former elder with us, and, and they come, and then there's this renewed fellowship. Texas is part of the U.S. still, right? Just checking. So far. But I've had this experience in many parts of the world, in Japan, in Singapore, Thailand, Malawi, Cambodia. As I meet believers from very different backgrounds, very different cultures, speaking very, with very different accents, there's still a mutual love and understanding for one another. And why is this the case? Because no matter the culture we come from, as Christians, our ultimate focus is Jesus Christ. We're interconnected to one another as we are all members of the body of Christ. And this experience of unity among believers is what we call fellowship, or the Greek uh, koinonia, one of those Greek words we tend to throw around in church, koinonia. This shared experience and unity, uh, this koinonia, fellowship, 
is a result of the fact that we all know Christ. In his first letter, the Apostle John makes this clear when he writes, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that... So what he said in his letter, he, uh, he's, what we proclaim, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. A primary motivation, it seems, behind John proclaiming the gospel was that his hearers be brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son and thus into fellowship with John and the church. Fellowship with God results in fellowship between one another. Relationship with God results in relationships with one another. And the key to the quality of our fellowship with one another is the quality of our fellowship with God. Those with the deepest fellowship with God, those who, uh, who have a trust and obey relationship with God, will have the deepest fellowship with each other. Because they share the same Biblical, God-centered view of reality, of sin, of, of self, of morals, of ethics. They share the same love for Christ, for His church, for His Word. They share the same hopes and the same mission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All of which can make for joyful, satisfying unity in the body of Christ. Getting together with believers. We have, automatically, we have things to talk about. And Paul, a Jewish Christian, and God's apostle to the Gentiles, experienced this kind of fellowship throughout his ministry. In the book of Acts, there are more than 100 different Christians associated with Paul. He named 16 different friends in Romans chapter 16 alone. Here in Colossians, he names 10 people in closing. Eight are listed in our passage today. These, are with, these eight are with him in Rome. And two more in the final verses who are in Asia where the letters are heading. Now we've looked at the first two people mentioned, Tychicus Onesimus, in depth. And we'll look at two more in depth uh, shortly. But let's first look at the six remaining together. Because these six men, along with Paul, show that fellowship breaks barriers. Fellowship breaks barriers. In this passage, six individuals send greetings through Paul. They're greeting the church in Colossae. They're in Rome. They're sending their greetings, their love, their... Say hey to the guys in Colossae. Three were Jews and three were Gentiles. The three Jews are listed in verse 10 and 11. Aristarchus, had to practice that one too. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. The Jews, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called Justice, those are the three Jews. And then in verses 12 through 14, we're introduced to the Gentiles. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, greets you. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. The Gentiles were Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. So under the leadership of the Apostle Paul, these three Jews and three Gentiles were serving the Lord together. This was his, this was his ministry team, along with Tychicus and Onesimus. And what I want us to understand is this was totally unique and radical in Paul's day. 
The Jew-Gentile division was huge on both sides. And even within those groups, the Jews had different factions of Judaism. The Gentiles had different things. There were certainly many differences. Many things that could have kept them apart. Culture had divided the world of the day into hostile camps, which could only be held together by the Roman sword. There were language barriers. There were national, provincial, city barriers. My city's better than your city. There were differences in religious and cultural background. But in Christ, all these men, along with Paul as their leader, were meeting together and working together willingly and lovingly. Despite the barriers that existed, they were experiencing biblical fellowship. Why? Because they'd been transformed by Jesus Christ, who demonstrated the barrier-breaking power of the gospel. If you remember, well, remember, way back to John chapter 4, when we studied that 10 years ago, I don't know, uh, we read of how our Lord broke the forbidden barriers by reaching out to the Samaritan woman. We know the story. Hatred between Judea and Samaria had lasted 400 years. While the Jews had kept their racial purity during the Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans had lost theirs by intermarrying with their Assyrian invaders. To Jewish eyes, this was unforgivable. Also, the Samaritans had built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, only to have it destroyed by the Jews in the Maccabean times. In Christ's times, bitter hatred reigned supreme. A Jewish prayer even included, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Hmm. Added to this was the fact that the Samaritan was a, a woman. Strict rabbis forbade other rabbis to greet women in public. Some Pharisees were, were called, I, I found this interesting, called, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Why? Because they shut their eyes whenever they saw a woman and so stumbled into the streets incurring uh, pious bruises. I'm going to start preaching with my eyes closed, ladies. No, I can't do that. But Jesus not only spoke to the woman, he used the woman's drinking utensils, thereby becoming ceremony defiled, a scandalous act. Jesus leapt far beyond the conventional barriers of his day. And in so doing, he modeled one of the greatest aspects of the gospel and his church. Jesus came to seek and save every kind of people. Not just people like you and me, but people from every walk of life. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every skin color, every religious background, every socioeconomic status. Jesus came to reach and bring together in his church every kind of people. This is what had happened in Rome and elsewhere. But the New Testament also teaches that this was not easy. The Gentiles in Rome were ready to mix, which you can imagine. You know, they had, they had come out of paganism, and they're ready to, to go at this new thing. But, but not many, or even most, of the Jewish believers were. They legalistically demanded that the Gentiles be circumcised and follow Jewish ceremonial law. Paul writes a whole epistle called Galatians based on this thing. And when Paul came to Rome, these legalistic Jewish believers were not excited to see him. 
They didn't fellowship with him. And, and they even rejected his, his authority as God's chosen uh, apostle to the Gentiles. Only three Jews helped him. Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called Justice. About them, Paul writes in verse 11, These are the only men of the circumcision, Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. You can imagine the comfort, you know, these Gentiles are willing to serve and stuff, but the Jews are rejecting me, but these three, these three bring me comfort. It seems that these three were the only Jewish Christians that were willing to work with, fellowship with Paul and his Gentile companions. These three were receptive and loving. They understood the grace of God. They clearly had the fullness of the new life of Christ and therefore understood what Christ had demonstrated. As I read the New Testament and see the life of Jesus, Paul, others, it seems to me that it's impossible to hold racial or other prejudices in your heart and be walking with the Lord. Because believing one group of people is in some way superior to others goes against everything Christ and his apostles taught. When a Christian refuses fellowship with other healthy, spirit-filled believers, there can only be one conclusion. Something is wrong with his or her relationship with God. When we're having fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with one another regardless of background. Three Jewish believers as well as three Gentile believers were experiencing a new life of fellowship. And they should be a model for us here at Bridges. When it comes to different backgrounds, cultures, races, we should be a loving, accepting, caring, united people. For in Christ, we are all one. And in Christ, fellowship breaks barriers. Now, in that list of Jewish believers, there was probably one name that stood out. One name you might be familiar with. Anyone? Which one? The Jewish believers. Luke, Gentile. That's a good one. Mark. And so we turn to Mark and his relationship with Paul where we see fellowship forgives faults. Believers at their worst can hold on to grudges and grievances, unable to forgive the faults of their fellow Christians. They ignore the Scripture's many commands to forgive. It's filled with them, by the way. Not just uh, Jesus said, uh, when Peter said, how many times do I have to forgive? How many? Seventy times seven, was that it? Nine hundred and forty? What was it? A lot of times, right? Seventy-seven? I think it's seven times seventy. It's a lot. Okay. Anyway, we have to forgive, and it's not a matter of t- it's a matter of just continual forgiveness. It's not you don't keep account. Okay, that's one. Do it again. Oh, two, three. Okay, four hundred and ninety-one. Forget it. I'm done. So, uh, we can ignore the commands to forgive. But others, like Paul and Mark, are able to extend grace and forgiveness. Earlier, young Mark, uh, he's often referred to as John Mark, had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey when they set out from Antioch. That's recorded in Acts chapter 13, if you want to look at that. 
But after ministering in Cyprus, Mark abandoned Paul when they reached the shores of Pamphylia, returning to Jerusalem. We're not told why he did this. We can guess from Paul's writings that the hardship was just unbearable. They were experiencing stress very much like that of a combat soldier. I mean, we read of what was happening, uh, what Paul wrote about his self and what was happening during his travels to the Corinthians. So later, when Paul was planning another journey, Barnabas insisted that Mark come along, but Paul refused. Paul knew it would be rough. It wasn't going to get any better. Things hadn't changed, and he didn't want anyone on his team who was just going to walk out, who was going to give up. The result was the famous separation between uh, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas took Mark, and they went their way, and Paul recruited a guy named Silas. But now, some 12 years later, Mark was with Paul in Rome, ministering to him in his imprisonment. As Paul sent Mark's greetings to Colossae, he even commended him, saying, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome Mark. And in the accompanying letter to Philemon, Paul called Mark his fellow worker. And later, as, Paul, as Paul's ministry and life were near the end, he said to Timothy, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me, for, for, to me for ministry. Basically, there was no way, even with past faults, that two men who loved God and were walking in fellowship with God would not have fellowship with one another. This is what true biblical fellowship brings. So what we learn is that even in the church, there will be faults, there will be sins, there will be grievances, we will struggle with one another in different ways. But if two believers cannot be reconciled, then either both or one is not in fellowship with God. If there's someone that you'll, you will not forgive, someone that you have no desire to forgive, though they have humbly sought your forgiveness, if so, you need to come to Christ in repentance, seek His forgiveness, asking for His power to forgive that you might experience the new life that fellowship offers. So we've seen the fellowship breaks barriers, fellowship forgives faults. Now we come to the final aspect of new life fellowship. Fellowship creates concern. We see this in Paul's description of Epaphras, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Way back, if, if you were here, in the first Colossian sermons, we talked about Epaphras. We looked at this verse in particular. So Epaphras was from Colossae. He's in Rome, but he's from Colossae. And if you remember, he'd come all the way to Rome because he was the one, he was the, the main guy concerned about the false teachers that threatened to divert the Colossian Christians away from their new life in Christ. Epaphras had a profound love, a deep concern for his fellow believers. Paul says that he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That word struggling is the Greek agonizema, where we get our English word agonize. 
Paul had watched Epaphras pray for his brothers and sisters in Colossae. And this was the one word that best described his prayer. The same root word was used to describe Jesus' fervent, fervent, blood-sweating prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Epaphras truly cared for his fellow Christians. He prayed that they would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. His prayer was specifically directed against the false teachers who, who offered perfection and fullness through their system. Follow us and we'll show you the way. But Epaphras knew that the Colossians already had fullness and divine perfection in Christ. So he prayed, God, help them to stay there. Help them to recognize that Christ, what Christ has done in and through them. Help them to live based on those truths. Epaphras' concern drove him to prayer. And this should be a lesson for us. When our fellow believers, our friends, people we have a relationship in the church, people we fellowship with, when they experience temptation to fall away, when they're being wooed by false doctrine, uh, when they're being influenced by our godless culture, one concern may, our concern may, may, be, may eventually cause us to confront them, to correct them, but first and foremost, we're to engage in earnest prayer for them. We're to pray for those in the church who are struggling, struggling with sin, struggling with doubt, struggling with unbelief. I don't know how much of this was going on in Colossae, but, uh, but uh, Epaphras says, I don't want it to go any further. And I spend time agonizing in prayer for my brothers and sisters in Christ, that they'll remain true to the faith, they'll remain, continue in the will of God. Those are the kind of prayers we need to be praying for one another. Paul then concluded his brief description of Epaphras by saying, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Or as the NASB translates it, I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. The word uh, worked or concern literally means pain, distress. Epaphras' concern for the well-being of his Christian friends in Colossae was so deep it caused him pain, it caused him effort, concern, and it resulted in hard work on their behalf. He worked hard in prayer. He agonized over them in prayer. And he worked hard by going to Rome to seek out Paul that he too might, might, might share his concern and help the believer in Colossae. Think about it. Things are, things are happening in Colossae. People are, people are uh, being diverted over here by these false teachers. And Epaphras goes, what, what do I do? Well, I'm going to go get the Apostle Paul. I'm going to get his help. And the result is this letter that we have, that we've benefited from. Epaphras' example teaches us that when you are in fellowship with Christ, you naturally take on something with the, hearts, uh, with the hearts of others. You naturally relate. You connect with others. And this overflows into hard work and deep concern for them. True fellowship impacts our emotions towards others. Pastor Philip Brooks, who wrote uh, the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, I just say that so you kind of know who he is, uh, put it this way, to be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress. 
The man who gives himself to other men can never be a holy sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. To him shall come from every, from every deeper consecration a before untasted joy, but in the same cup shall be mixed a sorrow that it was beyond his power to feel before. Some of you may have experienced this. Involving yourself in the lives of others brings both great joy and great sorrow. And I would dare say most of us would just rather avoid the whole thing. But that's the nature of true fellowship. And that's the way it was with Epaphras. And that's the way it should be with us. We need to ask ourselves, who are you concerned about? Who are you caring for? Who do you pray for with deep concern? Who do you work hard for? And if the answer comes back, uh, no one, then there's a problem. For Christ has called us not to isolate ourselves from one another, but be, to be devoted to one another. To first devote ourselves to fellowship, to relationship with God. And flowing from our relationship with God, we're to devote ourselves to fellowship, relationship with one another. We're to devote ourselves to fellowship that breaks barriers. Fellowship that forgives faults. Fellowship that creates concerns. So today, we've seen examples of new life in Christ. Tychicus showed us a new life of service. Onesimus showed us a new life of transformation. And the rest showed us uh, different aspects of a new life of fellowship. Now it remains with us to learn and to walk in what we've seen today. To apply what we've heard. To walk in the new life that we've received from the Lord. To follow His instructions and the examples that He gives. Would you pray with me? To that end. Father God, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would experience that new life in Christ. Thank you for the instructions we're given, and we thank you for these examples. These men of God, these, these friends of Paul, that just demonstrate service and transformation and fellowship. I, Lord, I pray we'll, that, that maybe each, each one of us has taken a different thing. We need to serve more. Our lives aren't as transformed as they should be. We need to come to Christ. We need to seek out fellowship. We need to, to care for the people around us. Lord, may, different one of us, ones of us may have different needs. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts. Thank you that we each have your spirit and you can convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, I pray you would bring about transformation in our lives and in our church. And we trust you with that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we close out with our last song in worship here, if you'd like to stand with me.